0: Hi, this is Teresa, and we are republishing this podcast for you because it's our number one most popular episode in 2022, so I hope you enjoy it and find it useful. It also means you get a new family-friendly, silly joke of the day. Hickory dickory dock, three mice ran up the clock. The clock struck one, the other two escaped with minor injuries. Okay, here's the episode. Welcome to Automation Chat. I'm your host, Teresa Houck, Executive Editor of the Journal from Rockwell Automation and our partner, Network Magazine. This is another editorial series episode in which I discuss my take on important issues that affect you and the industry. Today, I'm examining manufacturing supply chain reliability. Yep, that's a big topic, but it's affecting every industrial automation pro and industrial firm. So it's important to figure out what you can do about it. What strategies can you use to mitigate the effects of this supply chain disruptions? But before I dive in, it's time for our family-friendly silly joke of the day. Why is an obtuse triangle always upset? Because it's never right. Okay, let's look briefly at the domino effect that brought us to the supply chain situation we're in now and how these disruptions have affected industrial firms. Then we'll review some successful steps some manufacturers are taking to build resilience and agility into their supply chain so maybe those strategies might be useful to you too one special note we just published our 2022 supply chain reliability ebook and i encourage you to download it i put a link to it in this episode's description the ebook examines how manufacturers can prepare to deal with the supply chain disruptions and determine if your supply chain culture is ready for digital transformation. It also looks at how companies in specific industries like food and beverage, chemical and consumer product goods are building resilience into their supply chains. Now we're all facing a global COVID-19 pandemic, and this created a domino effect on the supply chain. We all know that. It might be hard to remember how this started more than two years ago. So here's a quick review of how those dominoes fell. Back in early 2020 when COVID hit, the US and then many other nations afterwards closed its borders to travelers to try to quell the virus spread. Then passenger jet travel stopped. And because about half of all air cargo travels on commercial passenger aircraft, air freight was immediately stopped. Then another domino fell when ships were refused entry to ports and the ships, along with their infected crews, were left at sea for months. So take that supply chain. And then there were shortages of vital medical supplies. I know we all remember that, like masks, gloves, respirators, and medication. And on top of that, the supplies often weren't produced domestically here in the United States and were only available from producer nations. So I want to pause now and give sincere kudos to all the manufacturers that converted their production lines to produce masks, respirators, and other needed supplies at the time. That was amazing, and you guys are heroes too. So as the world shut down production of almost everything to keep workers safe or because of worker health conditions, just in time supply chains collapsed. Shelves were empty and consumer spending bottomed out. Do you remember that toilet paper panic? Words we thought we'd never say, right? So then, a few months later, as economic stimulus funds were distributed, we saw overwhelming demand as people stuck at home and unable to spend money on trips or entertainment or go into stores, started ordering from online retailers in unheard of volumes. And lo and behold, this clogged supply chains for more than a year as supply and demand struggled to reach equilibrium. Okay, while that was stressful to relive, but it's important to remember how we got here. So now where we are now in today's situation, the supply chain disruptions continue because we have a worldwide shortage of microchips and then the great resignation last year with labor shortages and increased salary costs for employees who do show up to work. And there are hundreds of containers piling up in ports on both U.S. coasts and shipping hubs around the world. Plus a massive shortage of truck drivers needed to move the goods that eventually do make it onto the docks. Uh, in fact, a few months ago, this is a number I just saw and it was a little scary. A few months ago, the American Trucking Association reported that the U.S. is facing a shortage of 80,000 truckers, and that's a major factor affecting the supply chain. And now, Russia started a war in the Ukraine. Oh, Now that's a lot of dominoes. Now this war. The world was already facing rising prices and supply chain problems, but... Russia's war on Ukraine has deepened the problem. It has affected Ukrainian exports, caused bottlenecks at Black Sea ports, and caused boycotts of Russian exports and international sanctions that exclude Russia from much of the global marketplace. Specific to its effect on food and beverage manufacturing, the war is driving up wheat prices and threatening global supplies of bread, meat, and eggs. That means high food prices and food insecurity. In other words, a global food shortage. And this will continue during the war and in months even after it ends. Now there's a lot involved in how the war is affecting food supplies. And in the research I did, industry analysts, you know, could spend weeks delving into the specifics. So I'm just gonna look at some of the broad strokes. So Russia and Ukraine together account for almost one quarter of the world's wheat exports. I didn't realize this before the war started. Those two countries are also big exporters of corn, barley, and other grains that much of the world relies on. They're also enormous producers of sunflower oil, counting for about 70% of global exports. 70%. Wheat alone in general accounts for about 20% of human calorie consumption. So even before the war started, The U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics reported that the average cost of food had already increased by 7% in just one year. Since war started to look inevitable, uh, when was it early February, the grains and oilseed price index compiled by the International Grains Council jumped 17%. The big drivers have been increases of 28% in the price of wheat, 23% in the price of corn, and 22% in the price of barley. And that's just uh, as of this recording on March 18th, so those numbers could have changed. Now, I'm not going to go deep dive into statistics, that's not my area, and prices fluctuate daily, but the bottom line is the price of wheat alone has reached highs not seen since 2008. Obviously, the result is that it makes it more expensive for you food producers to make products like baked goods, pasta, packaged mixes, etc., And shortages affect more than the number of bags of flour on U.S. grocery store shelves. Uh, According to AP News, rising prices for corn, sunflower oil, and wheat will impact foods such as processed foods and meats. And nations like Indonesia and others who export food-related ingredients are slowing or halting exports to keep vital food supplies within their own borders. All of this adds up to potential for serious global food insecurity. Even in the United States where we're used to getting groceries delivered to our doorstep now or just running to the store and picking up what we want, shelves are starting to look more scarce. And as food producers find it more difficult to get ingredients, the shortages will start to be more evident to consumers. Ukraine's ports are closed, and its transportation infrastructure is disrupted and might not be working when the harvest season starts in July. Barley planting would usually be about now in March, but I can't see how that could be feasible when the nation is under attack. It's estimated that 20-30% to 30% of the Ukrainian wheat crop won't get planted because they need fuel and fertilizer, but realistically, it's likely to be an even higher percentage. Sudden shortages and price hikes will hit poor countries and their poor citizens hard. I mean, low-income households spend far more of their income on staples like bread than high-income households do. Egypt is among the world's biggest wheat importers, along with North African neighbors Algeria and Nigeria, which is one of the world's poorest nations. Indonesia, Turkey, and the Philippines are also major importers. So this will also affect meat and egg prices because cereal grains are used as feed for livestock and poultry production. The war has also worsened fertilizer supply issues that contribute to widespread famine, created a volatile stock market, and sent oil and gas prices to unprecedented levels. High gas prices are, in turn, raising the price of fertilizer, which is, of course, crucial for the nutrients in crops billions of people need. And obviously, there are other issues affecting food security in the supply chain. For example, The cost of fuel can be anywhere from 5% to 10% of a farmer's budget. If the cost to harvest the field outweighs what the crop will go for, or if there's no demand, the crops won't make it to market. This already happened once when the pandemic initially hit the U.S. Alright, now let's switch to the skilled labor shortage. As you know, the great resignation and labor shortages are affecting the supply chain. Some manufacturing sectors are struggling with it more than others. I know a lot of people who have different theories on why so many people left their jobs last year. A team from MIT analyzed data to determine the real causes of the Great Resignation. Plus there's a myriad of other studies, news items, and US Bureau of Labor Statistics reports. So let's look at some facts. Data shows that in 2021, 75.3 million workers were hired while 68.9 million people quit, were laid off, or discharged. So more jobs were filled than were vacated. But out of the 68.9 million jobs that were vacated, a record setting 47.4 million were voluntary quits. And that's why it was dubbed the Great Resignation. The pandemic has also allowed workers to rethink their careers, work conditions, and long-term goals, especially as life was put into perspective if they, their friends, or loved ones got sick or passed away from COVID. That's certainly understandable. I fall into that category too, but I didn't change my job. In fact, I actually love it more now than I did before, which I didn't think was possible. I'm very lucky. Anyway, besides people who were looking at their lives from a new perspective, other folks who had COVID are now suffering disabilities from long-term COVID effects and this alters their ability or desire to work. So here are some of the many reasons cited for the Great Resignation. The number one reason is a toxic work culture. That's ten times more important than compensation in predicting turnover. Heck, I could have told them that. Years ago, I left a high-paying job because a company leader made the working environment hellish. I know a lot of people have been in that situation. Related to that is another big reason for all the resignations. Lack of work-life balance. This is especially important to millennials and Gen Z workers, but with the health ramifications of COVID-19, it's important for anybody. Another reason is that people were laid off and just didn't go back to work. Also, people left to care for children or elderly relatives during the pandemic. In addition, older workers retired early, either because they could or because age discrimination forced them out of the labor market. Others resigned and started a new career path. Some workers left jobs for cash incentives, better pay, or better benefits. Some people left because employers failed to recognize performance. And this has nothing to do with compensation. It's about workers feeling seen and valued when they do excellent work. Many workers left because of how poorly employers treated them during the pandemic. Many workers left because of burnout, which is also tied into work-life balance. So many factors were at play here. For example, as the wave of mass resignations began, the remaining employees had to cover their shifts or take on those employees' workloads on top of their own. That meant longer hours and exhausted employees. Another factor was that job insecurity and reorganization made people feel like they might lose their job at any moment, so they looked for new jobs. And of course, COVID stimulus payments and increases in unemployment benefits allowed some people who rely on low-wage jobs to stay home. So you can see the main theme through most of these reasons is that the pandemic made people rethink their lives. The life is short, I should live to the fullest philosophy took hold. Next, let's talk about China for a minute. The nation is pretty much on lockdown now because it's experiencing its biggest spike in COVID infections since an initial outbreak in the central city of Wuhan was contained in early 2020. Ship owners, logistics firms, and analysts say the queues of container ships outside major Chinese ports are getting longer every day as COVID outbreaks in manufacturing export hubs threaten to cause a new wave of global supply chain shocks. The pandemic spread this month has led to controls across China, including key manufacturing and tech hubs of Shenzhen and Dongguan, which stopped factories from operating. Shenzhen was put on lockdown on March 13th after a major outbreak. It's scheduled to last a week while health authorities administer COVID tests to the city's 17.5 million residents and try to limit the spread. The city's Yantian port is the world's fourth largest in the world and it's prolonging the supply chain crisis we were already facing thanks to the pandemic. Supply chain experts say the lockdown's impact will devastate global imports and exports of crucial goods like flash drives, cars and car parts, and electronics like semiconductor chips, toys, clothing, iPhones and other Apple products, computers, tablets, headphones, you name it. Now, in the automotive industry, suppliers continue to face significant supply chain disruptions, lower volumes, and increased costs. So, in addition to challenges and costs that suppliers face managing their own supply chain, they're facing unpredictable rolling shutdowns of production by their OEM customers. OEMs around the world have imposed occasional plant closures to focus on their most profitable vehicles. For most OEMs, it has been many months since they, and consequently their suppliers, have been able to run full production. The shutdowns also intensify an already challenging labor issue because suppliers are forced to furlough their workforce and risk those employees not returning when production finally starts up again. So let's briefly look at what's happening to some specific automakers. Thanks to the lockdown, Tesla has stopped work in China, and Volkswagen and BMW have run out of wiring there. Both Toyota and VW have had to shut down production. This happened in January in plants in Tianjin, and then again in March in Cheungchun. And Russia's war in Ukraine has caused VW and BMW to halt production at several of its factories. VW announced in February that it had stopped production for four days at its factory in Zwickau, Germany, and then a three-day halt at its Dresden factory. BMW also closed factories in Munich and Dingolfing, Germany, and a plant in Oxford, England. The main issue was wiring harnesses. And then there's the chip shortage. It continues to be a massive problem for auto production. For example, Ford has been forced to idle a number of its plants on a weekly basis in recent months, including the Ford Ohio assembly plant that has been temporarily closed multiple times this year. Now, production at that assembly plant was paused for the second consecutive week during the week of March 14th, according to the Detroit News. This closure affects production of several medium-duty truck models and is being blamed on the chip shortage. The automaker is also indicating that it's at the point where it will ship Explorer SUVs without rear seat climate controls. However, it's offering to ship the missing pieces once they become available to nearby dealers who can install them. Toyota said it would make additional production cuts in March because of the semiconductor chip shortage. Days after the Japanese automaker reduced its domestic production target by as much as 20% for the April through June quarter. It's suspending production at a factory for eight weekdays starting March 22nd through the end of the month, which affects about 14,000 NOAA and BOXY minivans. Now, remember those dominoes I listed earlier? Today, while I'm recording this on Friday, March 18th, Toyota announced it would suspend operations at more than half of its operations across Japan because of Wednesday's 7.4 magnitude earthquake. So this is expected to affect... 25 to 35,000 cars and trucks in addition to the numbers I just listed. Okay so this is a lot to unpack but I don't want you to look at it in a negative way because some analysts are seeing things improving by the end of the year and hopefully COVID won't surge back and the Russia Ukraine war will end. I did this review because knowing what's going on and how we got here gives you a chance to evaluate your processes and technologies to help you prepare and see how you can minimize the effects of these disruptions. Now clearly there's no quick fix and I'm going to talk about some strategies that can help you build resilience and agility into your supply chain. Some of these are being used successfully by Rockwell Automation in their own operations and you can get details about them in our Supply Chain Reliability eBook that I mentioned at the beginning of this episode. Other strategies are general trends that manufacturers are finding success with. You'll find that the common thread through all of these strategies is digital transformation and the use of data analytics. So let's take a look. An important strategic step is to get as much visibility into your supply chain as possible. This helps you plan for what-if scenarios. And, for tracking purposes, connecting applications such as blockchain and IoT sensors could also speed things up such as by reducing customs clearance time. Now here's something related to supply chain visibility. Some manufacturers are having success by implementing two strategies, flexible manufacturing for more rapid changeovers and better supplier integration. Flexible manufacturing is all about the ability to adapt quickly and create seamless flow from need to delivery. This means suppliers must replace rigid operating models with levels of controls and responses that were once thought impossible. In our 2022 Supply Chain ebook I mentioned, Chad Markle, who's the Principal and Global Director of Calypso, a Rockwell automation company and digitalization services provider, says... Our leading clients aren't only redesigning their factories so they can switch models and products more quickly, but in the automotive industry, for example, they're going from changeovers of robots and software in four to six weeks to doing it overnight. This makes it a lot easier to handle volatility. Flexible production that can alleviate supply chain snags typically requires suppliers to implement one global manufacturing operations management system, or MOM, and other software that can harmonize their operations by alerting them to assembly line changes, local training needs, and other issues. An MOM system lets them effectively manage disruptions. Manufacturers using flexible manufacturing can also gain value by integrating their suppliers, such as working more closely with their engineering experts and contractors to get preassembled modules instead of just a box of parts. Another strategy is to establish balance. A supply chain will not succeed if the focus is only on agility or resilience. There has to be a balance because we'll look at it this way. Agility is offense. This is how you support customers when there's unplanned demand and unforeseen constraints. Resilience is defense. This is where you look at factors like how do you protect supply and capacity? How do you move inventory to be certain you have what you need to build what you promised? Next, consider if manufacturing redundancy is feasible and might help you. This is the duplication of critical manufacturing processes and facilities designed to be a backup or failsafe. This can be an option if you're... Thinking about localization or reshoring for faster response times. Some experts say that generally if you can protect your product mix and still transform operations, consider it. But if you can't do both, focus on getting your product out the door through redundant manufacturing. Many industrial firms that are having some success adapting are the ones using smart technologies. For example, Additive manufacturing, or 3D printing, makes it possible for goods to be produced directly in the setting where they're most needed. And advanced technology and robotics are increasing production flexibility and making it easier to switch products across manufacturing locations. Some manufacturers are mitigating the effects of supply chain disruptions by using artificial intelligence. Problems related to deviations in raw materials also can be helped by data analytics, applied in the form of Product Lifecycle Management, or PLM, software, and Model Predictive Control, or MPC. PLM is a sophisticated software platform that uses digital production definitions, worker management functions, and advanced visualization. It acts like an orchestration backbone, but it can also track materials, parts, and bills of material. All these capabilities let you manage your production and equipment life cycles with a digital thread you can use to make control changes. Another strategy is to use digital transformation to create a collective conversation. Now, here's what that means. This is a strategy Rockwell Automation uses, putting information together for a collective conversation across the entire enterprise and its function. This allowed Rockwell to capitalize on technology investments in ways it hadn't anticipated. The company's plan, source, make, deliver strategy simplifies its supply chain. So each of the four functions understands interdependencies. When something happens in one area, managers can anticipate how and when it will affect the other three and how to mitigate outliers. Another strategy is to create operating rhythm and closed loop scheduling. Rockwell Automation has taken steps to digitally improve and reimagine its own operations. See if any of these examples of what they've done can help you. 1. Operator heat maps are delivering line of sight production disruptions to maximize uptime. 2. Remote collaboration tools have transitioned product witness tests from in person to virtual. 3. Closed-loop scheduling is automating and optimizing daily production schedules. Closed-loop scheduling is the digital bridge between manufacturing and the enterprise. Rockwell Automation is also modernizing scheduling by digitally linking its manufacturing execution system with a suite of tools that allow its manufacturing teams to drive value. This includes a scheduling engine, visualization tools based on configurable business tools, staffing visualization tools that assign labor based on resources and certification, a closed-loop analysis tool that monitors performance against constraints, and a revamp of the shop floor supervisor and operator displays. The company says automating the planning process and corresponding transaction has created a 40% reduction in required planning resources and a 25% improvement in direct labor. Okay, let's look at what industrial firms are doing to mitigate the skilled labor shortage. An unpredictable workforce and constrained labor markets are making resiliency and redundancy even more important. So, more companies are using cross-training and upskilling to help fill gaps. Another strategy is to implement more workforce enablement and labor-supporting technology. It's likely you're facing much higher ratios of less skilled employees, more staff in new or unfamiliar roles, or costly shift scheduling difficulties. Chad Markle, who I quoted before, says one client we work with is using advanced analytics with a money ball strategy on their shop floor, which is similar to the book and movie about the Oakland Athletics baseball team that used data analytics to build a successful team from undervalued players. He said they track staff availability and skill sets, feeding analytical models to determine who's best able to run particular equipment at any point of time. This streamlines tasks and scheduling and is improving productivity, scrap, and worker satisfaction. He also notes that some companies are also supplementing their staffs with robots and automatic-guided vehicles. So that's how some manufacturers are building supply chain resilience and agility to keep going during these disruptions. The commonality here is digital transformation and data analytics, which can provide insights for real-time decision-making. From an agility perspective, the convergence of IT and OT fits into an overall digital manufacturing strategy. A digitally transformed organization ultimately makes the right decision faster and can more easily achieve the right balance of agility and resilience in the supply chain. You remember we talked about balance earlier. With intelligent supply chains, manufacturers no longer have to work on hindsight and hoping. You can leverage actual data to know exactly where things stand and where they can take you to achieve your business goals and meet customer demands. When all this is over, whenever that might be, things can't and won't go back the way they were. We all know that. So, these challenges have created opportunities for new ways of thinking, new perspectives, and innovation. Ultimately, this experience will create more robust supply chain practices. I sincerely hope you find this information useful. I really do. I'm Teresa Hauck with The Journal Magazine. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Automation Chat, please give us a five-star rating and subscribe so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you so much for listening.